Good to see everybody this morning. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll get going. Father, I thank you again for this uh, unbelievable opportunity that we have uh, to gather together as your people, uh, being transformed by your spirit, uh, offered to us by your grace, Lord, through your son. Uh, it's an amazing privilege that we have that we don't want to take lightly. And so we ask, Lord, um, that you extend your mercy, uh, you extend your grace to us in this time, extend it to me in the words that I speak. And we ask very simply that you, by your power, make my uh, very human words uh, effective uh, for change and for transformation, and that you do your work in our hearts and on our souls uh, this morning. Uh, let us not leave wanting to be changed and simply pandering and, 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 and scraping around in the darkness when we leave, but change us in the midst of our hearing as we look at your word and submit ourselves to your word. And we ask this for your name's sake and your glory. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started a brand new sermon series that we're gonna, that's going to carry us through the month of May uh, that we've called Cultivate. And from now and, and really until the month, through the month of May, we're going to take the time to unpack the convictions uh, that we have chosen or that we actually believe, I should say, God has chosen for us um, to be the people who he has called us to be, the convictions and the family traits or the, the values that we believe that God is after us cultivating into our souls and into our lives to be the people that he's called us to be in this time and place and in this city. Um, God has, has called us to join him on his mission to cultivate gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people that plant churches, that transform communities. That's simply all that we do. That's simply what we do, and when we pray about who we want to be generations down the road, we pray about being people who have raised up kids and raised up churches that simply do that. That's it. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking the values or the convictions that we believe are inherent in becoming those people and in becoming that church. And we've called it Cultivate because if you were here a couple weeks ago, I ranted on this a little bit. But we've called it Cultivate because for the most part, when it comes to values or convictions uh, or, or traits or whatever language you're used to from work or from church with these kind of things, we become very apathetic about these things and they become ideas that we can wrap our heads around and we can rally around as a people that we can learn the language of and the value of and the information about and, and share and pass on and talk about. But when it comes down to actually seeing them take root in our life and transform how we actually live, we actually get pretty apathetic about that. Uh, we would much prefer our values and our convictions to be the things that we identified ourselves by and then judge other people with instead of actually having those things take root into our hearts and into our souls and changing us from the inside out, producing an absolutely new person who lives an absolutely new way in the life that God has called us to live and the place he's called us to be. So we call this series Cultivate because what we're after is not just an understanding of the value or an agreement towards a conviction, but we've written them and titled them in such a way that they actually describe the intended effect that the conviction should have on our life. They actually are written to describe the way that we would expect to respond or be changed as this conviction or this value gets rooted into our souls. And so, for example, two weeks ago, we talked about the first one, and we said the value or conviction that's chief and foremost in our hearts and in our minds when it comes to this church and who God has called us to be is the person and work of Jesus, that Jesus is the number one chief value at Redemption Hill. But, but more than just Jesus being the chief value at Redemption Hill, our expectation would be that as he is valued in all that we do, what would be produced is a life that worships him above everything else. 
And so we're not just after everybody understanding that Jesus is a central value so that everybody can understand all the information they need to know about Jesus to tell other people who don't like Jesus about Jesus so that they can be right and they can be wrong and we can walk around and say that Jesus is the chief value of Redemption Hill. It's a conviction that we believe needs to be cultivated into our hearts and our souls because our hearts are so prone and so wired because of sin to worship everything but Jesus. That we need to be intentional about remembering that to have Jesus as a central value and conviction of the church We've got to be first and foremost aware and anxious to be about the process of cultivating that thing in our hearts because there are things that need to be weeded out, things that need to be rooted out. There's nourishment that needs to be put in to see that value become uh, a conviction that changes our hearts and transforms our lives so that in everything that we do, we're challenged by the reality of are we doing this in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus? Is he the chief value of our life? And so last week, we looked at the second one, which is closely tied to the first one. And for the most part, they're all pretty closely tied together if we did our homework well. Uh, but the second one we looked at was, was treasuring the riches of the gospel. If Jesus is our central value in life and practice and in this place, and our soul's expectation is that as we cultivate that value and that conviction, we would expect to see worship grow up out of our lives and, and into the places where we live and work that the next thing we want to value and, and, and hold as a conviction tightly in our hands and see rooted in our lives to transform us is the reality and of the importance and the power of the gospel, who he is and what he's done, and more particularly the riches of the gospel, who Jesus is, and in particular what he's done, that we can then intelligently apply that to our lives, that we can then intelligently take the realities of who he is and what he's done and fit them squarely to the places and the things in our lives where we have failed to understand that, where we failed to see that change take place. And, and so we talked last week about what it means to treasure that, what it means to treasure the riches of the gospel. And, and this week, and instead of moving on to the third, as I prayed more about it, I wanted to actually take a half step backwards uh, and catch people back up to where we were last week with treasuring the riches of the gospel. And then there was something else I wanted you to see um, that I thought about holding off for later, but I think we're actually going to do it this week. I wanted you to actually see what this would look like in the life of a person. And I think the Bible gives us an unbelievable collection of, of pictures of, of these people who have, who have in, imperfectly, just like us, and infrequently, just like us, wrestled with what it means to treasure the gospel above everything else and worship Jesus above everything else. And so before this thing became too close to being information and language that you could latch hold of and, and talk about, I wanted you to see a picture of what it actually looked like in practice. So what we're going to do is I'm going to half step back, catch back up, and then move forward and, and look at what this looks like. So Last week when we talked about what it means to treasure the riches of the gospel, we started by, by looking at one of Jesus' shortest but at the same time most potent and dense parables in all of Scripture in Matthew chapter 13. Um, I don't know if it's going to come up. I, don't worry about it if it does or not. It's like two lines, so you should be able to remember the story. Jesus was telling a parable about a man who, along the way, I don't know where he was going or what he was doing or what he was after, but he came across a treasure that was hidden in a field. Now, how he came across a treasure that was in the field is not clear to us, so don't ask. Um, I know we ask you all the time sometimes to really study and to ask questions of Scripture so that you can understand it, but that's a question you just won't get an answer to. We don't know what he was doing and why he was doing it, but he found a treasure that was in a field. And when he found the treasure that was in a field, when he perceived the value of the treasure, because we don't know what it was or what he found or why he found it, but when he perceived the value of that treasure, he recognized what it was and what it meant to his life, and he with joy ran home to sell everything that he had that he might obtain the field that the treasure was in. So we talked about this man and what it must have been like and the reality that 
five minutes, two minutes, one minute, before he found that treasure, there was nothing that you could imagine. There was no reason, I should say, to imagine that the thought of selling everything that he owned was in his mind or in his heart. Two minutes before he stumbled upon that treasure, if you'd asked that man if he was willing and ready to sell everything that he owned, all of his stuff, his home, his, his toys, everything, whatever it was for him, all of his camels, I don't, I don't know. If he would sell it all, he would have said, you're crazy. No way. That's what I've got. I mean, this is, this is it. Why would I sell everything that I've got? But one minute later, he comes across this treasure, and all of a sudden, something in him is absolutely transformed, and with joy, he runs home to get rid of it all. And we talked about what in the world would possess a person to do that when just a minute before, it wouldn't even have been a thought in their mind or in their heart. What possesses a person to take that kind of action when before it would have seemed absolutely uncharacteristic and almost foolish was the value that he perceived that treasure to actually have for his life. That man in that moment was transformed by the treasure that he found. And when he did a quick asset and quality analysis on that thing, he realized that it would actually be foolish of him to not go home and get rid of everything that he had because of the value that this treasure would mean to his life. That to not get rid of everything in order to have this thing would actually have been foolish. And so though he would go home to people who would not understand what he was doing and why he was doing it, his reputation would be soiled, his family would be confused, he's he's home trying to get rid of everything, but he can't explain what he's actually doing because it's a treasure in a field that he doesn't own yet. So he can't actually tell everybody what he's doing or where it is or somebody else will go get it. So without people understanding what he's doing and why he's doing it, he's at home getting rid of it all that he might go back to tame the thing that would absolutely transform his life. It cost him his reputation and everything. But in reality, the cost was small because ultimately it would have been a foolish thing for him not to do what he did given the value of the treasure that he actually had. That's where the idea of treasuring as a verb actually comes from. See, back in the day before banks and safe deposit boxes, when you had something precious and valuable, something that meant the world to you, something that you were willing to give it all away for, something that you were willing to protect with your life, something that you believe would transform who you are and it meant something of great value to you, you treasured it, you hid it, you put it away, you made sure that no one else could get it. You protected it with all that you were. You went after it with this ferocity we talked about last week, this passion last week that is second to nothing. And so that's what this man did. He went, got rid of everything that he might obtain this treasure. Because the reality of the, of the story is, and the reality of life is this, whatever you treasure, whatever you treasure in the sense that this man treasured what he found, whatever you find most valuable and priceless and of great worth to your life will control your heart. Whatever you treasure, whatever you pursue, whatever you will go and get because you really believe that you need it, and you have a ferocity and a passion about you to obtain it and protect it at all costs. That is what will control your heart. And what will control your heart will shape your attitudes, it will shape your thoughts, it will shape your convictions, and it will shape your actions. You will respond to the circumstances you find in life, the relationships you find yourself in, and the pursuits that you put your life and your family forward towards obtaining based on what it is your heart is treasuring. That's where it comes from. And so what we're after is being a people who are cultivating hearts, cultivating souls to treasure the riches of the gospel. 
We're after hearts and souls that treasure with a passion and a ferocity because of the perceived value of the gospel and the riches that it obtains. We're after people whose souls are treasuring that thing at great cost. Problem is we don't, we don't do it 24-7. We don't do it day in and day out. None of us perfectly treasures and perceives the value of what God has done for us in Christ and the riches that are in, inherent in that thing and how they change us the way that we should. And so we talked last week about some of the things that our heart so easily treasures when we struggle to perceive the value of what God has done for us in Jesus. We struggle to perceive the riches that are inherent in the gospel. And we find ourselves treasuring things like power and control. We will give ourselves to do almost anything to obtain a, a control or a power or an influence in a circumstance or in a relationship. We will treasure image. We will do almost anything to ourselves and our body and sacrifice almost anything to obtain what we need to present the image that we think we need to be accepted or, or approved or whatever it is, whatever, whatever you do it. We will do almost anything sometimes to obtain the approval of other people, to obtain the comfort that comes from knowing that you're liked or accepted or approved of or whatever it is that, that's motivating you in it. Our hearts are so easily given and so prone to treasuring something other than who God is for us in Jesus and what he has done and what he has promised or those riches that are inherent in the gospel that we find ourselves treasuring other things and you know what they are for you. You will go after them. I do not have to label them. I do not have to list them all out. We could go one by one and row by row and watch your face when it comes to you. Your face will change. You know what it is you give yourself to. You know what it is you want. You know what it is you think. If you had it, it would change everything about you and how you lived, and you want it, and you will sacrifice almost anything to get it, and it scares you sometimes. It will scare you sometimes when you think about what you're willing to sacrifice to get it. And what we're saying is we want to treasure and to cultivate our hearts and our souls to treasure the gospel and the riches that it entails and that are inherent in it with that kind of passion, that kind of ferocity, that kind of value and importance. And the thing about the, the parable that, that I always struggle with, um, and I think Jesus wanted us to struggle with it, so I, I, maybe I just give myself an out on that one, is that the one thing it never tells us about is that what was life like for that man from the moment he found that treasure to when he actually got the field and actually had it? You see, he's the one that found it. He knew where it was. Nobody else knew where it was. So in one sense, he had it, because he was going to go home and sell everything so he could buy it. But there was this lag in time between when he went home to sell everything and when he actually bought that field and he knew with certainty that that treasure was actually his, that those riches were actually his. I mean, what were the temptations that were going on in his mind? What were the doubts that were going on in his heart? Did he get home and start to sell things? And as he watched things go one at a time, his his animals go, his livestock go, his house go, did he wonder, "Did did I really see what I saw? Did I really count it right? that I really recommend, maybe the value of that thing has diminished. I mean, think about the doubts and the temptations and the struggles that existed in that man's heart and in his mind between the time in which he found it and when he actually obtained it. You see, that's, that's more consistent with what we experience right now in our lives when it comes to how we relate to who God is, what he's done, and what we call the riches of the gospel. I mean, there's this reality that we have obtained them when we have come to Christ in faith, believing on who he is for what he has done and our acceptance before God based on his life and his death and his resurrection. And there are tangible realities that we experience and change that we experience right here, right now because of what he's done. And then there's this ultimate reality that we're still waiting for. There's this ultimate reality that exists that promises us a life of, 
of absolute redemption and restoration and transformation in his presence for all of eternity? Yeah? We're not sure. Did you really read it right? Can he really do that? I, I know what I think this thing will get me. I know right now if I can give myself to this and get this, then I can experience whatever it is. But I don't really know. Did he really say what he meant? Did he, did he really mean what he said? Did he, is there really the power in that gospel? Are those riches really that valuable? Can, do we perceive them rightly? That's the world we find ourselves in. Much more consistent with this man is not just the finding of the treasure and the valuing, it's the believing between the time of actually finding and obtaining and changing in our life. That, that's really what's consistent with us. Do we value the gospel and the riches inherent in it with the same kind of value with which God was willing to give himself up for, for us to obtain? Do we see them the way that God does? The battle to cultivate is the battle to see the riches of the gospel as precious, as valuable, and as transformational as they really are. That's why we talk about cultivating, because our hearts are going to be prone to look at something else other than who God is and what he has done and find it more valuable, more precious, more important, and right now in this moment, more powerful to change my life and get me what I think I want and I need. And the battle is to cultivate our souls to see the value, the infinite value, the eternal value that's found in who God, who God is and what he has done for us. That's the struggle. That's the value. And so what I wanted us to see and what I wanted us to look at was, what does this look like fleshed out? I mean, what, what could this look like as our souls are cultivated to, to treasure the riches and the value of what God has done in the gospel for us. What would it actually do? How could it actually change us? I, I'm not really sure. I, I think I get it. I don't get it. What would it look like? Would I, would I walk around and, and sing all day long? Would I walk around with my Bible and just read the Bible? I mean, what does it actually look like? What does it do? I, I think we get a, a good picture of a life that has, has cultivated a sufficient desire and value and, and has perceived the value of what God has done for us in Christ. I think we get a picture of that in the Apostle Paul. I think the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote the better part of the New Testament and all the letters, the majority of the letters to the churches that are in the New Testament, who, who at one time was called Saul, who for, with the same ferocity that we talk about pursuing the riches of the gospel, how he had that same ferocity in pursuing the destruction of the church in, in, the, in the first century. I mean, he had given himself to seeing that church, the early church, not establish itself and not be able to grow and not being able to reproduce. He was a zealous persecutor of God's people. And so here's this man who had an encounter with the person of, of Jesus and whose life was changed and as his soul was cultivated, as he cultivated the, the value of the gospel and what Jesus had done for him in his life, and it began to work itself out, what you see is a man who went from a passion and a ferocity to kill the church to a passion and ferocity to see the church establish and to see the church grow. The difference was in the value with which he perceived the person and the work of Jesus for the gospel. The difference was in the value he placed in what God had done for him in Jesus and what was his in the gospel and how it would change him in the present life and offer a hope for all eternity and deal with everything from the past. He valued the gospel in a way that we have got to get. He treasured it more than life itself. And I think it's what you see in Philippians chapter three. If you've got your Bibles, go to Philippians three. We're gonna pick through some verses this morning. 
Some of you think, is he going to go to the Bible? We're going to go to the Bible. That's the next value we'll talk about next week, I think, unless we just stick with this one. Philippians chapter 3, I think what you'll see is a picture in the life of the Apostle Paul about what it looks like when the gospel is treasured rightly. Not perfectly, certainly imperfectly, but I think treasured rightly. Sorry, I got a dry throat this morning. Philippians chapter 3, we'll just start in verse 1 because it immediately, you begin to see it in verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, you got to get the context to see how even in this verse right here, you get a glimpse of what it means to treasure the riches of the gospel and for that to actually change the way you see life and the way you behave and the way you understand the life that you live right now. You got to understand when Paul wrote this letter, he was actually in prison. Paul was in prison in Rome, days, weeks, months away from at any time, not sure in his own mind of being beheaded by a very pernicious and, and evil emperor Nero. So Paul is in prison, in a Roman prison, not an American prison, a Roman prison. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly what type of Roman prison he was in. There were Roman prisons where these guys were often chained to soldiers and they would watch guard. There were other Roman prisons where there were actually giant holes in the ground that they would actually put people in and that's just where you would be. You'd be in a hole in the ground. That was the prison. No matter what type of prison he was in in Rome, the one thing we do know about being in prison in Rome is that if nobody came to take care of you, you, were, you would die. They didn't get three meals a day. They didn't get a gym. They didn't get yard time. They didn't get television. They didn't get the basic necessities of life taken care of. If someone you love did not come to care for you, you would die. So Paul is in prison, and he's writing this letter to this church, and, and he's, he's wrestling. You, you've got to think he's wrestling with the fate that was awaiting him, the reality that he knew was, was coming. In fact, scholars say it happened just a couple of weeks after he finished this letter. He would be beheaded. And so here's Paul in the midst of great affliction, great trouble, great struggle, great trial, writing to a church in Philippi, who we learn in 2 Corinthians was in the midst of great trouble and great affliction themselves. It was no easy road for the Philippian church at this time. So here's Paul in prison, in affliction, in trouble, writing to a church in trouble, in affliction, in a tough spot. And he says, it's no great trouble for me to write to you. Brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. What, what possesses a man's heart and a man's soul in the midst of such great affliction to write to a people in the midst of such great affliction, and say, rejoice. Rejoice in the name of the Lord. It's as if Paul's saying, consider, consider Christ, consider the gospel, and consider it so precious and so valuable and such a great treasure that whether you're in prison or in affliction or in poverty, knowing Jesus, belonging to Jesus, and treasuring the riches of the gospel is what will bring you infinite joy. That's what it means by treasuring the riches of the gospel. That even in affliction, the value of who God is and what he has done for you is your soul's greatest treasure. And here's how you know this was the reality for Paul as he wrote this. Just a couple chapters back or verses back, however you read your Bible, a couple chapters back in, in chapter one, Paul says this, astonishing. I don't even know we'll get past this this morning. He said for me, Paul, in prison, in affliction, starving, undergoing who knows what kind of treatment. He says to the church and he says to us, for me 
to live is Christ. For me to live my life, to breathe and to move and to have my being is Christ. For me to be a teacher that plants churches, that trains pastors, that establish churches all over the world, to go to this country and to this country and to this country, to love brothers, to love sisters, to care for the needs of the poor is Christ. All that I do is Christ. It's to honor him and worship him and glorify him. To have breath is to live in Christ. So that he can tell the Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's a man whose heart has been cultivated to capture what it means to worship Jesus above everything else. So he's sitting here in affliction and he says, to live is Christ. No matter what I do, I get a chance to glorify God and honor God in the way that I live my life and the opportunities he gives me, even sitting right here taking breath in this Roman prison, to live is Christ. But to die was at the end of his ministry, the end of his effectiveness to die would be great detriment to the church because I'm the one that's going and establishing the churches. If I don't go to this country, who, who's going to hear the gospel? If I don't go preach and if I don't go do this and if I don't go do this, what's going to happen? Is that what he said? For me to live is Christ, but to die, die is gain. Does not make sense from a man in Paul's position, from a man with Paul's responsibility from a man with Paul's giftedness. You know, if I had experienced what Paul had experienced in ministry, I would say for me to live is great gain for Jesus and me. And for me to die would be great detriment to the church. I mean, what, what in the world? What are they going to do? They need me. Churches need me. I mean, got churches in Philistia and Philippi. and Don't ask me about the Corinth. I mean, Corinthian church, I mean, good gracious. If I don't write them letters and straighten them out, what's going to happen? We have two in our Bible, but he wrote four that we know of. I mean, they're a jacked-up church. What's going to happen if I, if I die? You see, there, there's something about Paul's soul and the way that he perceived the riches and the treasure that was inherently found in the gospel. To such a degree that Paul could sit there where he was with all of his influence, uh, with all of his power, in the midst of all of his affliction, that he could say, for me to live right here, right now, whether let me go or not, is Christ, and to die is gain. And why is it gain? Verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Death is gain for Paul, because death means more of the gospel. It means more of Jesus. Paul had cultivated his soul to such a degree that he was increasingly, day in and day out, learning what it means to worship Jesus above everything else, and that had so changed him in the way that he saw the life that he lived and the, and the role that God had given him and the opportunities that he had and the riches and the value of the gospel had become so much deeper and so much more precious and so much more priceless to Paul that he could say, for me to live is Christ because I can make much of him in everything I do, but to die is great gain because I get Jesus. I get Jesus. You have to ask yourself if that's the reality in your heart. I mean, if you want to talk about what it means to treasure the riches of the gospel with Jesus being the most priceless and precious thing that we can find in the gospel, that we get Jesus above all that he has done for us, we actually get him. You've got to ask yourself, do you treasure the gospel to such a degree that for you to live is Jesus and to die is great gain? I will tell you, I do not do that very well. I mean, just yesterday, we, we spent the weekend getting ready for a party for, for Jude's fourth birthday. And, and I, I love that kid in a, in a way I can't even, I can't even describe. I, I can't even explain. I mean, we've, we've tasted the reality of, of losing to. And, and his presence, I don't know if it's, I don't think I'll ever know if it's, more, if it's sweeter because of what we've been through or if that's just the reality, if that's just what you feel, if that's just 
how much you can conceivably love someone. And, and so we, we worked so much to have this, have this party for him that if I were to die, my goodness, I, no more of that. I mean, no more of, of him running in and, and waking me up or picking up his little flute in bed and playing the flute and then yelling that it means it's morning time because <laughs> I'm still in bed. I mean, all of those little things. I mean, I, for me to die, it's great loss for me. But the reality of what Paul is saying, the reality of the scriptures and of the gospel is that for me to die when the gospel is treasured rightly is great gain. Is great gain because I get Jesus right then, right there for all of eternity. The gospel reorders all of our priorities, all of our intentions, and all the rest of the things that our hearts so rightly treasure. Boy, I'm to love that kid and love my wife and love the one that's about to be born, to love all of you, to love the opportunity that I get to do this. I get to wake up on Sunday and do this. For some of you, that's your greatest nightmare, but I, I, I love it and I get to do it. All the things that I get to do that I love get put in their right perspective when the gospel is cultivated to the right degree in my heart and in my soul. to such a way that I can, I can look at my family and say, to live is Christ. I get to be a teacher to you. I get to cultivate in you a desire to know God, know Jesus, help you live a life that reflects the glory of God and a, and a joy in knowing Jesus. I get that job. And he's called me to do that in such a way that I love you the same way Jesus has loved the church. That's, I get to do that. But I die, I get Jesus. I, I don't know. You've got to deal with that in your own heart. You've got to deal with that. And Paul is saying that the treasure, the, the gospel, to such a degree to, to cultivate your soul, to see the, the value inherent in the gospel, that even in affliction, where he was, is Christ. To die, it's a great gain. When that begins to happen, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I can find the words for you to, 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 to feel and to taste the freedom that comes when you get this. I've had it in bits, I won't lie. It's not, I don't wake up every day going, woo, we find a truck to run in front of. I don't, I, I, I don't. I, I love my, my family, I love my job, I love everything about what God has given me in this life, sometimes way too much, way too much. But if you can get the freedom that comes from when the gospel gets rightly positioned in your heart and that desire that your heart has to treasure something, because you do it, you do it. I mean, I, I don't know for you what it is, but you do it. When that thing gets focused on the right thing, when that gospel becomes central in your soul and you're in the process of cultivating and working it down into your soul, the freedom that comes when the gospel places everything in its right perspective is absolutely unbelievable. You will be free to look at your child 10, 12 years from now and all the kids that are back there, all 50-something kids that can show up back here in the kids' ministry on any given Sunday. In 12 years, we can line them all up if we've done our jobs appropriately and if we've raised them with the same sense of priority in the gospel and, and worked as moms and dads and uncles and friends in a church to cultivate this reality in their heart. We can line them all up there in 10, 12 years and send them off to places where people die, where people die because of the gospel. Or people die because they, they worship Jesus, they're, they're learning about the gospel, or because they have a Bible in their hands. And we can send our kids off to those places with great joy and say, go, 
because we've cultivated a passion in them to give themselves up. We can send them to school, to law school, to medical school, to wherever you go to school with great joy and say, go, serve, serve. And send them off to places that die and say, it's a great game. We can let them go. We can let them go because we've done our job and we've, we've got the gospel in its right place. It means a great deal when you begin to treasure the gospel the way that God's called us to. It means that you can look at the the resources that you have, all of the things that you have that God has given you the grace and the capacity to actually, actually obtain, and you cannot disdain them. You know, one of the worst things we do in the church is disdain people who have been given a gift to actually create wealth and resources. We've, we've made them kind of this weird second-class thing or we've given them special chairs to put up on the stage to, to sit up there for everybody else. But when the gospel gets treasured the way it's rightly supposed to be, you can look at the, the, the gifts and the talents that God has given you to create wealth, to make relationships, to have opportunities, and you can look at them as ways to say, for me to live is Christ. How can I take this thing and do the most with it to make the most of Jesus? And then if I die, it doesn't matter because I get Jesus. That thing has been put in its right priority. The freedom that you could have if you could live with that, if you could live with that, to recognize the gift and the grace that God has given you to do what he has called you to do. But at any moment, if you were to go, it's a great game. And that for every moment that you live, it's, it's Christ. I can do it to the best of my ability to honor him in everything that I do. How can I go and do more with what he's given me so that more can be done for him? What unbelievable freedom. It's not the freedom most of us live with. And it comes to cultivating the riches. It comes to cultivating a heart that treasures the riches of the gospel in our lives. That's verse one of chapter three. I told you I might not get past that. Chapter three, verse two. Let's keep going. Let's see what else Paul says. Look out for the dogs. I haven't been quite that abrupt yet. I thought I'd give us a year before I started calling people names from the pulpit. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Look at what he actually says. Paul actually says, We are well, let me back up. These guys he's calling dogs, these guys he's calling evil mutilators, were unbelievably devout religious people, just like Paul was prior to actually meeting Jesus, who were actually going into the churches and telling people that to actually be a Christian. To actually to love God fully meant that you could believe in Jesus and, and what he did for you, but now you need to get circumcised so that you can be part of the true church, just like Israel. That it was okay to get Jesus, but now you need to be circumcised no matter how old you were or what you were doing. It's not a, not a pleasant thing. And Paul says, look out for these dogs, these, these evil mutilators of the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and in Christ Jesus we put no confidence in the flesh. He's actually taking that word glory, he's making it a verb, and he's talking about us being the people of God, transformed by God, who worship Jesus above everything else, literally exult in Christ, glory, give glory to God, essence of worship. He says that's who we are because of what God has done in Jesus, and because of that, because of the gospel, and because of what we put our, our hope and our faith and our trust in, and it's rightly getting cultivated in its place in our heart, we put no more confidence in the flesh. We put no more confidence in those outward things that we thought we had to do to be the certain people that God would love and approve because God has already done all of that in us by Jesus, and therefore we are a people when rightly understood can worship Jesus above everything else, including all of our best efforts physically to earn God's love and approval 
God has already done all of that in Jesus for us. So we can actually be a people who worship Jesus above all, all else, not just worship Jesus above all the other religions and all the other gods and all, and all the other jobs and all the other opportunities. We actually worship Jesus above our own best efforts to please him. We can actually be a people that worship Jesus above our own best efforts to please him. And don't forget who wrote this. Man, listen, listen to the next verse. Next verse I'll tell you. Don't forget who actually wrote this. Verse 4. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in my flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, I have more. And here's his resume. Paul's going to give you his spiritual Christian resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In fact, we know from the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 22, that though he was uh, Jewish, Paul is actually a Roman citizen. So Paul is actually a, Ro- a citizen of Rome, which means he came from a probably very well-privileged, socially elite family. So not only was he perfect in his mind and in his behavior towards the things that he was required as a Pharisee, the guy who memorized the first five books of the Bible plus the writings and had 613 additional laws that he had to appropriately follow as a Pharisee. Not only was he blameless in all of those things, but he was also a very privileged, wealthy Roman citizen by birth. He was a very, very connected man. He was the man we all want to serve and and lead and and to do things in the church. And he says, if anybody had reason to have confidence in the things that they do, in their outward actions, in their outward appearances, I have the most. And so he just laid out his, his resume to everyone. Yet look at verse seven. There came a time when Paul, like that man in the parable in Matthew 13, he, he came to a time in his life when he had to let it all go. He had to let it all go. Paul found a treasure. He discovered a treasure in Jesus that so transformed his perception that he looked at everything that he had in his life, good, nothing to be ashamed of. Even in persecuting the church and the zeal that he had, he was doing it in a way that he thought would please God. He thought he was actually honoring God by persecuting this rogue band of people who were changing the law. Nothing, in a sense, to be ashamed of. But Paul found something, a treasure, that he valued in such a way that it caused him to let go of it all. To let go of it all. All the confidence that he had put in all the things that he had done. You think you've done a lot to please God. Think about what this man had given his life to from the age of five. You might do well to read your Bible twice a week. I undershot you on that one. Three times, four times, five times? I don't know. We'll take a survey one day. This man had actually given himself to the study of the scriptures in such a way he had memorized the entire thing. Lived his life in such a way that he obeyed everything that was in front of him, including the extra stuff. Had such a passion for it that he had given himself to getting rid of everything that exalted itself in the face of that thing. And he looked at it. And he looked at Jesus and he looked back at himself, and he looked at Jesus, and he said, if I had any reason to have confidence in the flesh, I've got you all beat. But there was a treasure that I found that was so more valuable, priceless in such an eternal nature, that I literally, I let go of all of it. Listen, listen to what he says. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, 
all the things that he had done, all the privileges he was born with, all the things that he had accomplished, whatever gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That word lost, loss, it's only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. Luke actually uses it when he talks about two of Paul's trips to Rome in which he suffered massive losses on the trip there. It's a nautical word, and it'll make sense in how it fits with Matthew 13 in just a second. That word loss is a nautical word that means when a ship would, would come into contact with a violent storm, waves capsizing, crazy storms out on the sea, they would actually have to decide what was more valuable. Getting to where they were going and living and letting go of all the cargo that they were transporting where they were going that was going to bring them revenue or, or keeping the cargo on board and trying to make it through the storm and possibly losing their life. So when they talk about loss, they're talking about the reality that a decision a captain had to make in the midst of a storm that said, though this cargo would bring me great gain, though I would get to port and make a lot of money, and though passengers on this ship have brought their personal possessions on board of this ship for the sake of the ship and the sake of the people, I've got to toss it all over. It's loss. It's loss. Because when they would toss the cargo off the ship in the midst, in the midst of a storm, the ship would ride higher on the waves. So when the waves would come that would generally capsize a ship, they'd ride higher on it. They wouldn't sit lower on the preceding wave and get crushed and get capsized on. So Paul's sitting here saying, whatever I had, all the religious things that I had done, memorize the Bible, obey all the rules, go to all the services, persecute the people who disagree, exalt God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in such a way that I am the Pharisee of Pharisees, leader of the religious people. I look at it all and say, it's, it's a loss. I gotta throw it overboard. I gotta get rid of it. In fact, that loss would not just lose me something if I kept it on the ship, if I kept it on my life, if I identified myself by it any longer, it would actually damn me. It was actually damning to keep those things for Paul because it meant that he would not find Jesus and he would miss the gospel. Paul said, I looked at this treasure, I recognized the reality of who Jesus was and I looked at my life and I looked at all that I had done and as great as it all was, I had to throw it all overboard. I had to get rid of all of it. I had to toss it all. In fact, I don't just toss it all and count it as loss. It's rubbish. It's excrement, dung in the vernacular. Paul looked at his life and all the good religious things that he had done and he looked at the gospel and he did a very quick cost-benefit analysis just like that man did in the field. He looked at his life, he looked at what he had, he looked at where he was going and he found that treasure and did a really quick cost-benefit analysis and he said, it would be foolish of me to bury this treasure and to go back and to live the life that I lived as if I'd never found it. And he went home and he sold it all. He got rid of all of it that he might obtain the field that treasure was in. Paul, when confronted with the reality of the gospel, when confronted with the person and the work of Jesus, did a quick cost-benefit analysis for lack of a better term. Looked at his life, Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees, did all the right stuff. Right stuff. Good religious guy. Looked at Jesus looked at his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. And in a moment, he said it would be foolish. In fact, damning, 
death to me if I don't get rid of all this stuff and cling tightly to the reality of who God is for us in Jesus. If I don't cling tight to the gospel and to the righteousness, Paul will say, that comes to me by faith in Jesus, I'm done. So he counted all his loss and off the ship it goes. None of us have that kind of pedigree. None of us have the pedigree that Paul has. But here's a picture of a man whose soul has been cultivated, not perfectly, imperfectly, over time, but deeply, to such a degree that where he is, he can look at this church in the midst of all the circumstances they're in, he's in, and say, live, Christ, die, gain. I had it all. But in face of the preciousness and the riches of the gospel, everything I had was lost. The surpassing worth, he says, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and a righteousness that I obtain that's mine by faith in who he is as Paul began to put his faith in, not in what he had earned to please God, but in what Jesus had done to meet the needs of what Paul could never do. Paul began to see his place in comparison to Jesus and began to see there's just no way that I'm going to continue down this rabbit trail anymore. And he put his faith and his hope squarely in who God was for him in Jesus. That thing began to just work its way deep into Paul's soul. It began to change him began to restructure the way he saw life, began to restructure the way he behaved, began to restructure all the priorities with which he lived with. He had to throw it all overboard. Now, we're going we're gonna to run out of time here. Look at verse 9. Let's go back. I'll read verse 8 and verse 9. We'll finish up. Paul said, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, verse nine, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For an entire lifetime, Paul had considered his righteousness before God being based on who he is and what he has done. And when confronted with the gospel, it was all put in its right perspective. All of the Bible reading, all of the services, all of the worship, good things, great things, not prime things, not the priority. And he began to see where his righteousness is rightly found in the gospel, in Jesus. All of those things that he put his hope and his faith in, he tossed them all overboard that he might gain Christ that the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus might so cultivate and dig deep into his soul, it would change everything about who he was. So what we're after, what we're after is being a people who together, as a family, pursue what it means to cultivate in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in all of our inner being, a desire to treasure, to treasure the riches of this gospel in such a way that it absolutely transforms the way we see who we are and what we do. That we can look at whatever it was that we had all the right and confidence to boast in that we thought would earn us something with other people or with God himself and say that in spite of the gospel, because of the gospel, it's all loss. It's all loss. So imagine, imagine Paul sitting there. He's in that cell, in that hole, in that cave, I don't know, wherever he is, in chains, cold, probably hungry, 
what we know of in the Bible and the accounts of Paul's life, probably very skinny, frail, been beaten, been shipwrecked, stoned, suffered a lot, stoned with rocks, suffered a lot over the years for Christ. Sitting there, getting ready to write this letter, and an old friend comes, an old Pharisee comes, comes to visit Paul in the prison. Imagine his reaction to Paul. What, what in the world are you doing, Paul? What in the world are you doing? You've let it all go. You had such a promising career, such a promising life, such great hope. What are you doing? What have you actually gotten with all of this? You let go of your status. You let go of your reputation. You let go of your finances. You let go of the, of the prosperity or, or the hope of actually having a family. What, for what? For what? Look at you. You're sitting in a hole. You're about to be beheaded. And what's left? These little clusters of crazy, random, former godless people all over the country that you've got to go babysit and take care of and, and talk to and straighten out. What? What in the world? And you close your eyes and try to think about Paul in that moment and think about that person and think about it and then think about hearing Paul say, hmm, what did I get? What did I get? I lost all of that, but what did I gain? Hmm. I see this crazy little wry smile coming across his face. Uh, very, I picture him really weathered, really thick-skinned, kind of frail, kind of beady. I don't know why. I picture this smile. What did I gain? Huh. Well, let me tell you what I gained. And I can imagine Paul just sitting there. Here's what I gained. In Christ, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, I gained a righteousness that's come from God that nothing that you or I ever could do could ever earn that kind of favor for. I gained a righteousness that's come from God through Jesus to myself that now I can stand in his presence completely forgiven, completely free, completely without condemnation or any worry that whatever I did wasn't good enough for him. What did I gain? I gained it all. What did I gain? What did I lose? I lost nothing. What did I gain? I gained the adoption into God's family by which he gives me the right because of Jesus to call him father. I gained it all. I can see Paul just beginning to kind of warm up, you know, if you've been cold or if you've been kind of tired, I could just, you know how when you get going and you get talking and, and you get excited, you just get picked up and your speech gets fast and your body gets going? I just picture this look on the cell game. What did I, what did I gain? Huh. You just asked me the perfect question. Let me tell you what I gained. I gained Jesus. I gained Jesus. I gained everything that you and I had searched for for our entire lives that we thought that all these things would bring us. I gained it all. It cost me nothing. What we're after and what we want and what we pray for and what we purpose ourselves towards is being a people who cultivate our souls and our hearts to such a degree that like Paul, we can say that we are treasuring and have treasured and will continue to treasure the riches that come to us from God through Jesus in his gospel in such a degree they change us. They absolutely transform us. They make us absolutely new people and nothing in our lives is perceived as valuable and as precious as what God has done. 
That's what we're after. What it will look like, I have no clue. I, I really have no clue. This is what it looked like in one slice of Paul's life. What would it look like in one slice of every single person in his life? I have no idea. The places God is going to take you, the relationships he's going to put you in, the opportunities he's going to give you, I have no idea what this will look like in your life and in our life 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, but it's enough for me to get up in the morning. It's enough for me to wake up and think, in my responsibility and where I am, what have you called me to do to cultivate this thing in people's lives and in my own? What it will do in my son's life, I have no clue. But if it's anything like what it did in Paul's life, if it's any taste and sense of the freedom that came to him when he understood the preciousness and the value of the gospel, I'll give myself up for it every day. Every day. We are convinced that to be the people that God has called us to do and to do what God has called us to do and to be who God has called us to be, one of the things that we must prioritize and be increasingly ferocious about is cultivating in our hearts a desire to treasure the riches of the gospel. To that end, we will we will give ourselves completely. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the priceless nature of what you have done for us. Thank you for the preciousness of the riches of the gospel. Thank you for the power inherent in the message of the gospel. Thank you that you have done for us everything that we could never do for ourselves. Lord, help us to be more aware and to wake up. Let it be daily, Lord. Help us to wake up and throughout our day think, what what is my treasure? What is my treasure? What is my primary treasure? How, Lord, can I treasure you and what you have done more deeply? How how can I treasure you in a way that, that puts everything else in its right place? and in its right perspective. How can I suck all of the joy out of the life that you have given me in such a way that it doesn't exalt itself above the reality of who you are and what you have done? Or give us a perspective in our minds and in our hearts that lives life that way. Lord, and do great things for your glory through this church and through these people and through our lives and and may this city and all the places that you'll send everybody here, I don't know all the places you're gonna send them, but all the places you send to people that have come from this church, Lord, let those places see you through us and be transformed by the reality of a people who treasure you and the gospel above everything else. That is something for which no one else has an answer for. Let our lives be a a beautiful picture, just like Paul's, of what it means to treasure the gospel and then give us the opportunities and the words to communicate the hope that we have within us in such a way that you receive great glory and we receive great joy. Amen.